there. Welcome. Have you ever been to Portland before? Well, I haven't ish. <laughs> I mean, I've been to Portland, sort of. I've been on the Portland 205 Beltway like 591 times, which I don't think really counts as having visited Portland. If I've been on the Portland 205, does that count as having visited Portland? I don't really think so. But let's talk about the Portland 205 Beltway for a minute or 10. This baby is the mother of all mothers, a drug courier's biggest nightmare. The 205 Beltway is the quarter circle freeway that goes around the southeast side of the city. The traffic on this beltway made all the traffic we went through on the rest of the trip seem like a cakewalk. If we got to the beltway by 3 p.m., we could easily zip across that roadway in about 10 to 20 minutes. But if we got to the 205 later than that, it would often take us over two hours and there was no zipping, I can guarantee you that. Remember the centipede traffic I told you about down on Interstate 5 in Grants Pass and those 17 to 37 cars piled up behind RVs on the Redwood Highway during the summer holidays? I'd take 46 RVs in the Giant of the Avenues over this beltway. If I thought the traffic was bad before, this beltway makes the Willits Friday Night Street Fair look like a NASCAR race. Now, I'm no shrinking violet and neither is Bob when it comes to driving in traffic, but driving weed in that kind of traffic is a whole new ball game. So far from Salt Lake, we've driven west out on the Utah-Nevada desert out to Willits, California, then turned north up the Redwood Highway and worked our way up to Portland. Now it's time to take the 45 degree angle southeast to work our way back down to Salt Lake. The 205 Beltway is the transition to make that turn. No matter where we left from the Emerald Triangle or what time it was, all our decisions were based on negotiating the load around the 205. If we couldn't get to the 205 by 3 p.m. on a weekday, then we didn't even bother. We just stopped shy of it somewhere like Eugene, which is two hours south of Portland, and spent the night. The thing is, no matter how cautious, careful, and diligently we drove, keeping an eye on our blind spots, looking left, right, left, right, rear view mirror, front windshield, 360 degree vision. How pathetic would it be to get in a wreck during a traffic jam on the beltway hauling the kind of weight that we hauled? Think about that for one minute. And for sure, on a freeway like that, at least 50 to 60% of all accidents on a freeway are going to be rear-enders, right? Remember Murphy, you know, from Murphy's Law? According to that law, whose rear end was it going to be? Yep, that's right. It was going to be our rear end. 
And there's nothing an invisibility cloak can do about that. That's over the cloak's pay grade. There's no control with rear-end accidents. If you're the one being hit, it's not like you can speed up to keep that from happening. There's no place to go with the wall of cars in front of you. You know, I think anal sex and rear-end wrecks are kind of all in the same category. They both suck. <laughs> How were we supposed to keep mindless commuters from hitting us? Daily commuters practically drive with their eyes closed. People have more important things to do than drive their cars in heavy traffic. Commuters live a quantum life. They exist in two places at once. They're singing for the big karaoke contest at the bar with their homies Friday night while they're commuting. As the car inches along, they sing into their pens and their hairbrushes. Pride open faces, room for docs to make big mistakes. Jeez, I'm like, excuse me, keep those eyes forward, please, Missy. Missy? Um, yeah, you, eyes forward. They hang their arms out the windows, smoking vapes full of God knows what, chit-chatting on their cell phones. Hey, yeah, you, I'm talking to you. Get those hands on 10 and 2 and turn down that stereo and stop fiddling around with that dial. Forward, eyes forward, people. Let's go. Come on, we can do this. Trust me, all those left-wing liberal Portland commuters were no different. When it comes to bad driving, there's no such thing as a righteous liberal or a God-fearing conservative. Without even thinking twice, they all put my load and my life at risk. Try to imagine all the wrecks you've ever rubbernecked or even the wrecks you've been in. You get all the cops, the ambulances, incident vans, and other sundry support people that show up for accidents along any given freeway, right? Lights, sirens, flares, cones, and slow-moving traffic. Now, multiply that wreck's intensity by 10 out on a congested freeway like the 205 Beltway. Okay, now let's get exponential and multiply that by a hundredfold by adding DEA agents, helicopters, feds, sheriffs, and news reporters to the fray. That was my life right there in a nutshell. You want to know why we made almost $10,000 a run? I'll tell you why. This right here. We earned every single penny of our pay. This is why Bob and I were freaking rock stars. <laughs> a couple of years ago, they, whoever they are, said that Portland was one of the top 10 American cities to live in. What? <laughs> These naive judges obviously were chauffeured around in a limo during the hours of 10 and 2, and they probably fed them braised pork for lunch, too. No need to tell these judges that the whole damn city is vegan. <laughs> How can any place make it to the top 10 with a monster like the 205 Beltway holding the city hostage twice a day? 
But to be fair, like I told you, I have never really even been into the city of Portland except on that hostage beltway. I have never actually had the time to stop and go into Portland. We did lots of sightseeing while we were waiting on the brokers, but once we picked up the load, we got the hell out of Dodge City and went as fast as the speed limit or traffic would allow us to get back to Salt Lake. Once we were carrying, we could never take that kind of time to go see the sights, jeopardizing the load like that. What were we going to do? Park the load on a side street? Lock the door and go check out Portland's awesomeness for a couple of days? <laughs> I wish. The longer we were out on the road, the higher chance we had of something happening to the load. It was just too exposed. We only stopped for very short breaks, which consisted of peeing, getting gas, and fast food. Or we stopped for the night and we were up and gone by dawn. And that's it. Which explains why I've never been to Portland. I want to see the rain falling in the Japanese gardens and go to visit Portland's hamsters with their tiny feet, their hairy faces, and vegan diets and straw beds. Oh, 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 wait, that's, that's hipsters. <laughs> Sorry. What I meant to say is I want to go to a bar and watch Portland hipsters drinking their freaky little microbrews. <laughs> I stayed at the Monarch Hotel on the east side of the 205 at least 50 times, but I've never been to Voodoo Donuts. How, I ask you? How can I die if I've never been to Voodoo Donuts? Trey lives there now, and I've still never been to Portland. The only thing I really know about the place is what I saw in Portlandia and what he tells me about it. I think I've told you before that Trey teaches and manages a yoga studio up in Portland right now. He tells me that it's very politically correct and that he pretty much offends at least three people a day. He's a very enlightened millennial until he opens that mouth of his. He just can't help it. It's, it's not his fault. He's my child. Acorns and trees. Acorns and trees. <laughs> Once, we got through the beltway by either beating the traffic or spending the night somewhere and then beating the traffic, we were on our way on the last leg of the triangle. Many of the drives we made on Interstate 84 were made early in the morning. It was always so breathtaking to drive directly towards the big blazing ball of neon orange rising over the mighty Columbia. The river itself reflected the purple and fuchsia pinks on the water as the sun rose. Sometimes the Columbia River was as smooth as a mirror. Other times the driving wind frothed up white caps up and down the river currents. I loved watching all the hundreds of colorful sailboarders out on the river whipping it up. That's how big this river is. You can sailboard on it. I-84 is so verdantly beautiful as it follows the expansive river and its tributaries, like the Snake River, on over to Boise and then to Pocatello, Idaho. 
thousand feet high cliffs rise on both sides of the Columbia, dividing the two states of Washington and Oregon. I-84 was on the south side, which was the Oregon side. In the spring, there were hundreds of gushing waterfalls plummeting down the sides of those soaring cliffs. I'm a desert rose born and raised in New Mexico, and now I live in Utah, both which have very arid climates. I'm very familiar with the smell of sagebrush and being able to see wide open spaces. Because of that, I think I'm a lot more fascinated with all this water. The Pacific Ocean, the numerous rivers, the steady rainy weather, waterfalls big and small everywhere, and green trees and vegetation from wet climates. I go berserk with every little waterfall and clump of trees I see. I'm over the top about anything that has to do with water. Oh my gosh, water! Look, Bob, water! <laughs> Brother, I especially love stopping at Multnomah Falls, mainly because it was only about a 40-minute drive from the Beltway shit show. <laughs> It was always a short but needed reprieve for us at Multnomah Falls. Multnomah Falls is a completely different world from the frenetic commerce up and down the Interstate 5 and urban Portland. These beautiful falls took us away from all that. I loved how the cool misty air hit my face in the hot summertime. Or rainy winter days, I love the smell of the candied cinnamon almonds wafting through the air. It was so cozy to feel the warmth of a cup of hot chocolate in my hands as we watched the spectacular crystal water crashing down about 600 feet. The setting here in this little nature vortex is kind of a, an Americana with a charming little gift shop. When I could, I stopped at the shop to buy a local artisan blown glass planet. I still have 10 to 12 of those little crystals. Every so often as we sped along the Columbia River, there was some killer bridge or a dam to take the traveler over to Washington. The dams were built during the Works Progress Administration under President Roosevelt's tutelage back in the 1930s. He and Congress approved the joint resolution of the WPA in hopes of jump-starting jobs in the Great Depression. There were at least three or four dams harnessing the power of the Columbia River along the way before I-84 veered off to the Snake River. I also love looking at the vast hills dotted with hundreds and hundreds of 80-foot-tall windmills scattered along the interstate. When I think about all those little towns in Oregon east of Portland along the Columbia River on I-84, I think of blue-collar towns, not necessarily in this order, but towns like Trousdale, The Dalles, and Baker City. Then there's Hood River. Hood River is the home of all the river cell borders and the microbreweries. It's a great place to stop and eat. That night we stayed in the hotel room. In a strange coincidence, Bob woke up and got out of bed at 3 a.m. to check the load. It was parked just outside our window. He saw a cop holding a mini LED flashlight and an electronic notebook as he walked down the row of cars checking license plates and car interiors. 
Bob's heart suddenly freeze-dried. He stopped breathing and his legs locked. He was still as a statue as the cop approached our car. The cop fiddled around with the flashlight and notepad. He pointed the high-powered beam of focus light on the black blanket in the rearview window. Bob thought he was going to faint. The cop put the tiny flashlight between his teeth, made more notes on the backlit pad, and then moved on down the road. Bob's knees were chilly by then. He folded back into bed, shaking like a leaf. He couldn't sleep after that. An hour and a half later, at 4.30 a.m., he dragged my butt out of bed, loaded me up, headed on down the interstate, and didn't stop till he was back in Salt Lake City. How did Bob wake up just at the right time to see that cop lurking around in the motel parking lot like that? Do you believe in coincidences? Makes me wonder. How many more searches like that did we miss? And how about that invisibility cloak? Let's give it a hand for that magical blanket, everybody, right? Holy crap! <laughs> On a bit of a lighter note, we drove at least five miles along this man-made forest. I was fascinated by the fact that people could plant a forest that huge, but apparently not the eco-terrorists, as the FBI liked to call them. I don't really know what the eco-terrorist issues were, but they went in and torched the ranch house and office building of the tree forest, and later I heard the tree farm sold out to a potato farm. I thought that kind of sucked because it's just such an anomaly to see this weird geometry of perfectly lined trees in a forest. It looked harshly unnatural for trees to do that. Kind of freakish, actually. As you drive by, it's almost like looking into a kaleidoscope of mirrors, seeing each line of trees converge into the middle of a long row down a mile or so. The perfect line of trees were five miles along the interstate and at least a mile or more deep in the opposite direction. Another weird but wonderful wonderment along the way. <laughs> like I said before, Interstate 84 veered off the Columbia somewhere between the forgettable one gas station called something something and the further east you go in Oregon, the less green it becomes. As we traversed across Oregon, without us even noticing, the altitude gradually ascends higher and higher as we worked our way towards the Rocky Mountains. Where we really noticed this dynamic was on the interstate at Pendleton, Oregon, right next to the Blue Mountains Summit. The interstate suddenly rises over 3,000 feet in less than 40 miles. When we started at the bottom of the summit, for the most part, none of the bags of weed even peeked over the back of the window until we started up this pass. As we climbed the summit, switching back and forth, up, 
up the mountain, each bag of weed began to expand due to the sudden pressure changes. By the time we got to the top of the summit, you couldn't even see out the back window at all. The bags, even the watertight bags that we used, looked like big khaki balloons rolling around in the back of the SUV. This sudden rise of altitude didn't just affect our bags of weed. It stopped non-four-wheel drive vehicles and the truckers cold. By first snowfall, which was usually around October and on into the months of April and May, long lines of 20 to 40 truckers had to pull their rigs off to the side of the road to put on chains. The state had long-built shoulders for this purpose. Even though it wasn't snowing at the bottom of the summit, it usually wasn't, the weather was just fine. Sure enough, halfway up the mountain, the snow began to fall and the rest of the truckers who hadn't thought to put their chains on were now doing so. I pulled my cozy warm blanket around me as I watched the truckers go out into the cold, fighting the weather as they worked on the tires. And always, there were a few inexperienced truckers whose rig had slid into the banks of the shoulders. Driving week after week, month after month, out on the road in East Oregon and Idaho interstates during the Arctic months gave me a real appreciation for American truckers. These guys drive through ice and rain, snow and blizzard conditions to keep our nation supplied with food and essential goods. Truckers and anyone to do with transportation are the backbone of our nation and are literally the most unsung heroes of our time. Once you get over that summit, the mountain levels out and the weather calms way down. The bags deflate and we can breathe a sigh of relief that no one hydroplaned into us and that the interstate glided us over the hill and dale into a lovely verdant town of La Grande, Oregon, home of the Oregon Police Academy. We just kept our heads and bags in the back seat down and quietly motored on through La Grande. One of the record incendiary summers, as we were rolling down the big hill just before we got to Baker City, we actually saw a fire break out in the valley below us. It started out kind of little, and we didn't know what to do, so we did nothing and kept driving, hoping that people who didn't have weed in their vehicles would call the authorities instead. In many places, the landscape and the towns were so beautiful, I just have to stop and talk about it. But in some towns, they were so shitty, they were worth mentioning. Speaking of the devil, that would be our very last town on the border of Oregon and Idaho, Ontario, Oregon. Ontario is a town like Crescent City, California, that is a prison industry community, meaning that everyone in that town makes their living working for the BOP, the Bureau of Prisons, or state prisons, and all the ancillary businesses that go to the prison industries. Ontario was the home of Snake River Correctional Institution, the largest prison facility in Oregon. This prison held over 3,000 inmates. 
You can see the lights, the fences, and the guard towers just off the side of Interstate 84. Both Crescent City and Ontario felt really dark to me. There was an almost tangible heaviness in the air in these places, an oppressive cloud. All over Ontario, uniformed COs, cops, and guards rushed back and forth to work. These intense, purposeful people and their families shopped at the Walmart, ate at the fast food places, and gassed up their cars in the gas stations. The buildings, streets, and homes were colorless, shabby, and artless. I don't really feel like this was just me being Trinity either. Any time you go through a town that makes its living off of imprisoning others, you will feel the bad vibes, the gray fluorescent white noise that buzzes, penetrating and mutating everything around it. After stopping there for gas in Ontario a few times, we just stopped going there after a while. Well, so far it's been quite a trip, hasn't it? Who would have thought that a journey of this triangle could be so interesting? By the time we started the last leg of our trip, which was usually started in Portland and made it to Interstate 84, we were having to dig deep for that second wind to finish the trip as strongly as we started. We could never let our guard down, ever. It was intense. It was dangerous, it was boring, it was fun, it was exhilarating, it was exhausting, it was all of that. The thing I liked about driving weed was how varied and how big the spectrum was. From driving the tangled snarl of the 205 Beltway, seeing the mammoth Columbia River, drinking hot chocolate and stopping to drink a microbrew and watch the Hood River sailboarders was an epic journey. As you can see, the weather and the landscapes also deeply affected our actions. There's just so much to share, but I'm out of time tonight, kids. Next time, we'll pick up on Interstate 84 over the border in Bob's home state, Idaho. So. Whatever you do, stay out of trouble. <laughs> and don't do anything I wouldn't do. <laughs> we'll see you later. Bye-bye.